0: All right. So, how is everyone doing tonight? All right, that bad. Cool. Awesome. Glad we're all here and we're doing so terribly. Um, I want to uh, start today um, again by saying a special word to the Notre Dame community that uh, is watching, Um, and especially to Daryl. Those of you that were here last week got the privilege of hearing Daryl preach. And, uh, Daryl, I know you're watching. I want to say a special thank you for doing such an awesome job here uh, last week um, and tending the pulpit well. Um, And I wish that you guys could be with us tonight, um, but we look forward to when we're all back together. So tonight uh, we are beginning a new series, and the title of this new series is Jesus Take the Wheel, How to Parent Your Kids So That They Don't Become Garbage People. Now, I had originally planned to start this week on a series um, on marriage and SE, but um, because of the pandemic, uh, we have had to um, put our children's ministry on pause, and so over the, the last month and a half or so, the kids have been with us in here. And so after giving it some thought um, and praying about it, of course, I decided to postpone that series until we can um, uh, resume children's Activities so that I'm not up here waxing eloquent about the birds and the bees and creating conversations for you guys as parents before you want to have them. Uh, I have had some of those conversations already with my children, and they have been hilarious. Uh, If you'd like to hear those stories, please see me after. I'd love to share them with you. Uh, But in case you are not yet ready to have hilariously awkward conversations defining things that you don't yet want to define, I am postponing that series until a further date. Um, Now, you might be wondering why I'm teaching a series specifically on parenting. And there's a number of reasons why, one of them being that a pretty high ratio of our members here are parents. And so it makes sense to talk about parenting with that being the case. Being a parent is one of the greatest responsibilities that God has ever given us uh, in our lives. I was recently having a conversation with someone um, regarding shortcomings as a parent. And uh, he said in that conversation, I just did what my dad did. I did and said everything that he did. And no one ever told me that I was doing it wrong. And that struck me when he said that. And immediately I began to, to... feel that I need to make sure that I do everything I possibly can to help the people in this church be the parents that God wants them to be. I don't ever want there to be a case where someone who's a part of this body has a shortcoming like that and says, well, no one ever told me what I was supposed to do. No one ever told me what God wanted me to be like as a parent. I just did exactly what my parents did. Now, some of you are not parents, especially those of you who are about this tall, okay? Some of you are not parents. And so you might be thinking, all right, cool, this is the perfect time for me to skip church for a few weeks, because this does not apply to me. But not so fast. This series is for you as well. Maybe someday you will be parents, someday in the distant future, right? Maybe someday is uh, closer than you think. But there's no better time to start preparing than now, before you ever have kids. If you can figure out before the kids ever come, how to be a godly parent, instead of figuring it out after they come, well then you will be a much better equipped parent than any of us. Your spawn will thank you. Um, Even if, though, you're never going to be a parent, even if that's never a part of uh, the Lord's plan for you. For one, every one of us has parents, right? And so part of this series is going to talk about how to honor our parents, whether they're good parents or not, and, and that will come up uh, later on. Ultimately, though, this series is about God and how he is our father and how he's given us parenthood As an experiential analogy to reveal the relationship that he has with us. So, no matter who you are, no matter what demographic you fall into, don't tune out. So, I would like to begin this series by sharing a small piece of my testimony. The story begins in 1967 in Virginia Beach, Virginia. No, I'm not that old. I'll get to why it starts in 1967 in a moment. At the time, and still currently, Virginia Beach has a bit of a geological problem that they have to deal with. You see, in Virginia Beach, they have a very high water table. You can only dig about 10 feet down in the ground before you hit water. So, what that means, among other things, is Virginia Beach cannot have landfills. Now, if you're ever looking for a fascinating way to spend an afternoon, just Google landfills. And I promise you, you will have tons of fun reading all about how we deal with our garbage. Here's the long story short. About 50% of the garbage that we produce as Americans is buried in landfills. Landfills at times can be up to 500 feet deep, giant holes in the ground where we bury our trash. And supposedly, it's buried in an eco-friendly way that does not have any effect on the surrounding environment. Fingers crossed, right? Once the hole is full, then the landfill is closed, abandoned, and a new one is opened somewhere else. And trust me, the earth loves it. But what do you do when you can't dig a giant hole for all your trash? Because if you dig more than 10 feet, you'll be in water. Well, that was the problem facing Virginia Beach, Virginia. So for a while, they had just been putting trash in shallow trenches. But doing so was expensive, inefficient, and largely ineffective. And so Roland Dorer the director of the State Department of Health, came up with a much better idea. He said, instead of burying our garbage, let's build a big mountain with it and then cover it with dirt and build a park on top of it. Sounds crazy, right? But that's exactly what they did engineers took trash and clean soil and compacted it into uh, thousands and thousands of 18 square inch cells and each one of these cells contained a mixture of clean soil and 100 pounds per cubic foot of garbage pretty incredible then they took all of these trash soil sandwiches and they piled them up and then took bulldozers and compacted them together even further and built higher and higher. And then they topped the entire thing with six feet of good soil and a layer of grass sod. The result was a mountain spanning 165 acres, over 80 feet tall, 900 feet Long and 300 feet wide. A big old mountain in the middle of Virginia Beach. Special care was taken to ensure that the garbage would not detrimentally affect the environment. Measures were taken to eliminate methane gas um, being vented out towards the city. And to eliminate odor. Residents of the area dubbed this project Mount Trashmore. Once the mountain was completed, the Parks Department constructed on top of the mountain walking trails and bike trails. Two lakes were filled with fish. An enormous playground called Kids Cove was constructed, as well as the biggest skate park in Virginia Beach. And so the park opened in 1973 and attracts, to this day, over a million visitors per year. Recently, there was a second mounted added next to Mount Trashmore called Encore Hill. And now there are multiple more playgrounds, volleyball and horseshoe pits, picnic areas, pavilions, many other amenities. And it is one of the most popular parks in the entire state of Virginia. Now, you might be thinking, Twayne, I thought you were going to share your testimony why are you talking about Mount Trashmore? Well, because Mount Trashmore actually provides a pretty good synopsis of my story. See, growing up, I was pretty much a steaming pile of garbage. If you'd have known me back then, and Allison and I were having some conversations this week um, Kind of speculating, if we had met when we were in middle school or high school, would we have dated? Would we have hit it off? And um, I was pretty much a garbage person, so I'm glad that we didn't and that the Lord saved that for later. And for years, through so many different rebellious choices, one choice at a time, a new layer of garbage would be added. But God used my parents to lead me to Jesus. He used my parents to show me how to live for God's glory. He used my parents to give me an example to follow and to emulate. And God took this garbage person and he transformed me into something that could be used for his glory. He transformed me into something useful for the kingdom. Now, that being said, much like Mount Trashmore, there are still many times... When I still stink, and the faint odor of garbage still lingers in the air. And if you had the misfortune of knowing me as well as my wife does, then you would get lungfuls of that odor. And while this is a perfect place to insert a joke about gas, I won't, and I'll keep going on. (laughs) The fact remains that I could have and should have turned out to be nothing more than a landfill. But God used my parents to mold me into a mountain. And my prayer is that every single one of us who is given the tremendous responsibility of parenting children will learn to do the same. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel uh, comes in the Bible right before 2 Samuel. So, if that helps you find it, uh, right before 2 Samuel. (laughs) And there, in 1 Samuel, we're going to contrast the stories of two families. Specifically, two parents in these families. The mother of one family and the father of the other. Now, both of these people are followers of God. Both of them are trying to faithfully do the work of God for the kingdom. But one of them raises a mountain, while the other raises two landfills. So uh, we are going to be looking here um, at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. So I'm going to read a lot of scripture today, much more than normal, but you can't complain about that because if you complain that I read too much of the Bible, you're a lousy Christian. So 1 Samuel chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Allison, am I not more to you than ten sons? Thank you. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to her house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took up with her, along with a three year old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as long as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now... The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, "'Why do you do such things? "'For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. "'No, my sons, it is not good "'that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. "'If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. "'But if someone sins against the Lord,' Who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Then in distress you will look on with envious eye on all the prosperity that I shall bestow on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. All right, so. A lot of scripture there. Uh, Let's kind of uh, break it down and recap. Here in this passage, we have two parents being contrasted. We have Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and we have uh, Eli, the father of Phineas and Ferb. And what we see is that Hannah was a good parent who raises Samuel to be a godly man, serving the Lord, benefiting the kingdom. Eli, on the other hand, is a failure of a parent, and he raises Phineas and Ferb to be wicked men who steal from God and damage the kingdom. In case you're wondering, yes, every time I read this passage, I have to say Phineas and Ferb. It just makes sense to me. Now, I want you to know about Eli, that Eli didn't want to be a bad parent. I'm sure he didn't set out from the very beginning, to be a bad parent. I'm sure he wanted to be a good one. I'm sure he loved his sons. I'm sure that he would do absolutely anything for them. I'm sure their pictures were always in his wallet, in his robe, and that he worked hard to provide a good life for them. I am sure that his intentions were good. But, after all his good intentions to serve the Lord... His good intentions ultimately failed. And I don't want us to make the same mistake. So let's first look at the results of these two sets of parents. Um, Samuel and Phineas and Ferb. Samuel, it tells us, was serving the Lord from a young age. This is repeated over and over and over. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says... The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Again, in verse 18, it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Again, in verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And so, this is a young man who from the very beginning began to serve the Lord and continued to do so. In fact, eventually Samuel would take over for Eli. When God judged Eli and his sons, when he put them to death, God kept his promise through the prophet here in chapter 2 to put a faithful priest in Eli's place. And that faithful priest ended up being Samuel. So, Raise your hand if you want to raise Samuel's. I certainly do. Then we have Phineas and Ferb. These are wicked men who have absolutely no regard for God, they have contempt. For the Lord. And there's a couple of things that are pointed out for us that these men were guilty of. The first is in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, where it talks about how they were taking from the offerings. Now, the custom was that the priest and his sons would eat the leftovers uh, after offerings were given to the Lord. But instead of eating the leftovers, what these two guys were doing is they were stealing the best of the offering before the offering was ever uh, put onto the fire. And not only that, if they said to someone, give us the best of what you've got, and that person refused, their response was, you better do it or we're going to take it by force. So these are guys who are not only taking from the Lord with contempt, they're threatening violence to anyone who, who refuses to comply. Anyone who does not just help them is threatened with violence. We also read that they are sleeping with the staff. Um, In chapter 2, verse 22, he kept hearing, Eli kept hearing, all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So these are guys who, if we picture it in our modern vernacular, are the pastors, and they keep sleeping with the greeters. And they are brazen in their disobedience. They do not care who knows about it. And Eli keeps hearing reports about what they're doing, it says, from all the people of Israel. They even ignore their father's rebuke. Their father comes to them and says, Guys, I I keep hearing about what's going on. You really need to stop. And they flatly ignore him and continue to do this. So, to sum it up, they are garbage piles. Raise your hand if you want to ra- raise some garbage piles in your life. No one? Yeah, me neither. No, put your hand down, dude. <laughs> Not the time. <laughs> so, the question then becomes how do we do our part as parents? Now, Let me say, first of all, that ultimately every person is going to make their own decisions. And so, if your kids turn out garbage piles and you did the very best you could, it's not your fault. Every individual must make their own choices. So, my intention here is not to make anybody feel guilty for how their kids turn out, but my intention is to have a self-examine to ensure that we are doing what we are called to do as parents. So here's point number one. If we value our kids' happiness over their holiness, we will lose both. If we value their happiness over their holiness, we will lose both their happiness and their holiness. I'm sure that all of us want our kids to be healthy, to be safe, to be comfortable. And all of those are good things. I want those things for my children as well. But if that is the extent of our desires for our kids, we have fallen woefully short. You see, our main job as parents is not to give our kids a comfortable, safe life. Our main job as parents is to disciple our kids to follow Jesus. To put that in a different way, we often In this nation, make an idol out of giving our kids a safe and comfortable life, in protecting them from danger, protecting them from pain. But our job is not merely to keep our kids from pain, it is to shape them and to mold them to live and look like Jesus. In this passage, there's a very telling verse an indictment against Eli, where God makes it very clear exactly what he is guilty of. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. This is in the rebuke of the man of God who comes to speak to Eli. And in verse 29, he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? And, here it is, Honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. God looks at Eli and he says, why do you honor your sons above me? What he is guilty of is honoring his children, giving his children more than he gives to God. He has taken his kids and he's put the kids above Jesus. What an indictment. Now, we ask the question, how exactly was Samuel honoring his sons above God? What exactly was he doing? Well, a number of things that he's guilty of in this passage. One is making sure his kids get whatever they wanted instead of teaching them how to honor God's ways. Again, they, they are stealing from the offering. They're going to the offering and rather than eating the leftovers like they're supposed to, they are taking for themselves whatever they want. So they have a position of influence and power that they're using for their own gain and Eli is doing nothing to stop them. He is making sure that his kids just get whatever they want. We see also that Eli is a passive parent. He didn't want to do the uncomfortable thing of confronting his children for a long time. A long time goes by before he finally says something. And by then, it's too little too late. For a long time, what he does is just accept their sin. He just shrugs because he valued his fellowship with them over their fellowship with God. By the time he actually rebukes his sons, the damage is done. It's revealed at that point that he didn't raise his sons well. Furthermore, he should have done more than just rebuke them. He should have disciplined them. He should have removed them from their priestly positions. He's the high priest. He is the boss. He has the authority to remove these men from their positions. And he doesn't. He could have done anything to prevent them from defiling the tabernacle, from defiling the offerings. Instead, he gives them a slap on the wrist and they go right back to what they were doing. Sometimes I think we are so concerned with being our kid's friend that we fail to be their parent. We see here also that Eli put his kid's success over their character. How do I know that? Well, again, it's very apparent that these guys are lacking in character. That requires almost no examination whatsoever. But they served as priests anyway. And he is the one who put them in the position to be influential. And he let them stay in that position in spite of their sin. So here's the thing. Again, we often make an idol out of our children's success. If you want to know what this looks like, go to any little league baseball game, and you will see there are parents who are making an idol out of their kids' success, doing so very loudly and very profanely. (laughs) Now, I'm not at all against kids in sports. I'm not trying to harp on that, but I'll use it as an example. You have parents treating their nine-year-old like they're the next LeBron and they've got a Nike deal, and they'll spend thousands of dollars, hire specialized coaches, making sure that their kids are involved seven days a week, never letting them do anything else, being so hard on them that their kid probably hates the sport now anyway. And saying things to their pastors like, hey, listen, I, we'd love to come to church, but um, Timmy's got his sessions with his swing coach at the same time as youth group. Now, that's not a theoretical quote, okay? That's a direct quote that was spoken to me when I was a youth pastor in Virginia. We'd love to come, but swing coach is, uh, is Wednesday nights. And I'm like, you hired this person, right? Yeah. So you can hire them to do this coaching whenever, Right? Well, maybe, but she's got homework. And I'm like, ah, you're not getting the point. The point is, there are so many people who are idolizing their children's success. And it's not a bad thing for you to want your kid to be successful and, and to set them up for success. That's, that's a good thing. But it shouldn't be the main thing. Remember, again, your goal is not to teach your kids to be successful. Your goal is to teach them to be like Jesus. There's a verse in Proverbs that likens children to a quiver of arrows. And that a parent is to take those arrows and fire them out. That means that you have to be firing at a target. Where do we want to fire our kids? The target is Christ-likeness. The target is holiness. The target is godliness. Godliness. I want my kids to be a success, but not at the expense of their holiness. If Eli, my son, becomes the captain of the Notre Dame football team, but he lives like Hoffney and Phineas, I've failed as a dad. If he achieves the greatest success in the world and yet loses his soul, I have failed if he's a millionaire and he's famous and he does all the things that the world says you're supposed to do and all of the world is looking at me like, way to go, dude, you set him up. But yet he is not living like Jesus. I am a failure as a father because I did not do the one thing that mattered. See, God has given us children to steward them well, to raise them To love Jesus. To be people of substance and character. Not to get good grades so that they get into a good college so that they get a good job. Not that those are bad things. I do hope those things happen too. I do hope that Eli gets A's instead of C's. But that's not the main priority. The main priority is holiness. Point number two, if we fail to invest in our kids, we set them up for failure. If we fail to invest in our kids, we set them up for failure. Again, this is a place where I remind us that every person is ultimately going to make their own decisions. And even if you invest in your kids, sometimes they make choices that lead to failure. And that is their fault. But what should we as parents be doing? Investing. That's our part. And so here again, we see the contrast that we have in the passage. Specifically now, the contrast between Hannah and Eli. From reading this story, it becomes abundantly clear that one of the reasons why Samuel ends up like Mount Trashmore, very good, and Phineas and Ferb turn out to be landfills, is because of how their parents invested in them or failed to invest in them. We see that Hannah was actively, consistently, constantly involved in the shaping of her son to serve the Lord. While at the same time, Eli is passive in the lives of his sons. You see, Eli made the mistake that so many other ministers make. This speaks directly to me as a pastor. What he did was he was so concerned with serving other people that he neglected to serve his own family. He served the nation. He ministered to the nation, but he didn't minister to his household. He put his job at church over his job at home. And there have been many times that I have been guilty of that. I will never forget a conversation that I had with Allison um, back when I was uh, living in Virginia I was serving as a youth and college pastor um, at this church. And as the years went on, my duties increased. And I I began to wear more and more hats. Eventually, I was over all of adult discipleship. And and this is a church of several hundred people. And so I was working seven days a week and seven nights a week. Uh, There was always something. Small groups, youth group, discipleship group, apologetics group, all kinds of stuff. And I would come home exhausted and often not do what I was supposed to do at home. And Allison sat me down and said, I do not want your leftovers. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, this is your family. We get what is best. If anybody's going to get leftovers, it's everyone else. Because what she recognized was that my job first is as a husband and father. And second, as a pastor. And that conversation has stuck with me. We see here in this passage that Eli is a very busy man. He is both high priest and judge over the nation. You see, this is before the time when Israel had a king. And so during that time, in the, in the story of the history of Israel, we have a period known as the period of the judges, And during this time, these judges, these men and women, were the rulers over Israel. Samuel and Eli are two of the last judges. So Eli is the high priest, serving in a ministerial role, and he is also judge, serving in an administrative role. He is leading the people spiritually and leading the people politically. Very busy man. So busy, apparently, with his job that... Verses 22 through 24 of of chapter 2 here tell us that he heard about what his sons were doing. Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel. Verse 23, he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all of these people. He's uninvolved in actively leading his sons. He is hearing from other people what his sons are doing. Other people have to come to him and say, hey, do you know what your kids are up to? So instead of being actively involved in their lives, he is passively expecting them to figure out on their own how to obediently follow after the Lord. We notice also from verses 23 through 25 that his approach was just simply to correct them verbally. It says he rebuked his sons. Why do you do such things? He even says, you know, if you sin against a person, maybe God will help you. But if you sin against God, who can intervene? Not surprisingly, they ignore his rebuke. Because their father was uninvolved in their lives. They didn't spend time together building a relationship. And it seemed to them that his job... And, consequently, the job that they were supposed to be doing also was more important than a father-son bond. So, who should be surprised that these guys rebel? Now, contrast this with Hannah. How Hannah is actively involved in raising her son Samuel, even though she doesn't even live in the same place. They live in a place called Ramah shiloh is where her son is but she's still involved in his in his raising from the very beginning of chapter one what we see is that hannah and her husband elkanah were modeling for their kids what it looked like to follow after the lord they're faithfully going regularly to make sacrifices faithfully praying faithfully offering to the lord Showing their kids at home what it means to uh, live for him. Then we see that Hannah is earnestly praying for Samuel. Before Samuel is born, she is earnestly asking God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And she's praying so earnestly that Eli thinks she's drunk. Lady, lay off the sauce. She's like, I'm not drinking. I'm praying. I'm praying for a son. But we also see that it's more than just, just prayer. When she received from the Lord what she asked, she didn't just simply drop Samuel off at church, seeing her job is complete. Look at um, verses 18 and 19 of, uh, of chapter, uh, chapter 2. It says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to her home. So she is actively involved in equipping Samuel to serve the Lord. She's actively involved in shaping him. She doesn't expect that the church is going to just make her son what it's what he's supposed to be. I'll never forget uh, a time after church uh, again when I was in Virginia as a youth pastor, and uh, uh, church had just let out, and this lady comes to me and she's like, "I need to talk to you. It's really serious." I'm like, "Okay." So we go to my office, and I'm like, "What's going on?" She's like, "It's my son." And she begins to tell me all of these things that her son is doing. And then she looked at me and said, So can you fix him? And I'm like, Excuse me? Can you fix him? And I'm like, Ma'am, how do you expect me to do that? And she's like, With church. If he comes to youth group, can you fix him? I I said, Ma'am, I can't fix your son. I I can do whatever I possibly can to disciple him, to mentor him. But you need to know, I am going to be with your son at max two hours a week. If he comes to both sessions of youth group. Even if we meet together one-on-one after that, okay, three hours in a week. And I will spend those three hours doing whatever I can to point him towards Jesus. But I want to partner with you to help you do that at home because the most important thing that your son needs is to see his mom and his dad modeling every single day in front of him what it looks to live like Jesus. And she looked at me like I had three heads. And she was like, okay. And she walked out and I never saw her in church ever again. Presumably because she either gave up Or she went to a different church and asked the same question, can you fix him? I don't know whatever happened to her son. The point is, this woman didn't just drop him off and say, all right, see ya. She was actively involved in shaping him. So, self-examination time. Let's ask ourselves a series of questions. Are we too busy as a family... To actively and regularly discuss the things of God together. Are we modeling for our kids what it means to look like Jesus? Are we earnestly praying for them? Are we investing every single day into their spiritual growth and into the growth of their character? I mentioned at the beginning that I recently was having a conversation with someone about parenting. And one of the things that came up in this conversation was the idea that many dads believe that their job is simply to provide for their families financially. They go to work in order to pay the bills, to keep food on the table, and keep a roof over their family's heads. And that's true, but many dads stop there. Many dads believe that when they get home from work, they can just check out. That their job is done because they have gone to work. And many will spend so much time at work that they can't be present for their children's events and activities. They'll say, sorry, I can't make it. i got to work. Now listen, this is coming from someone who knows exactly what it is to spend 80 hours a week for years on end working. I've been there, done that. Hated it, but I've been there. My job as a dad is not to just put money in our bank account. My job is to disciple my kids, to invest in them every single day. My job is to invest in their mother, to love her and serve her and serve them at home. If I don't do that, I should not be surprised if my kids grow up to be garbage piles. I'm in the process of having conversations like this with Eli. Before I go to work, I'll often say to him, all right, buddy, you're the man of the house while I'm gone. And he's like, all right, cool. And then I'll ask him, Eli, what does the man of the house do? What does the man of the house do, Eli? Eli? He serves. He serves. I want to get him in the practice of knowing that as the man of the house, you serve. We have to invest in our kids. How do we do that? Okay, let's keep it really simple. How about real time in conversation every day? Not just talking about surface things, about heart things. One of the best times to do that is dinner time. In our house, we have a no devices at dinner rule. It is a no phone zone. And I enforce that religiously. Sometimes even having to say to my wife, Allison, put your phone away. I'm the the Grinch in, in that way. No devices at dinner. Because at dinner, I want us to focus on each other. I want us to have real conversations. I want to ask them how their day was while I've been at work. I want us to look each other in the eye and really invest in that time. Now listen to me. Even if you do not have kids, start practicing this. If you are dinks, that means double income, no kids, do this with each other, okay? Sit at the table, put your phones down, and look each other in the eye. Connect face to face. I read one study that said the average American parent spends three and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation with their kids. And I read it, and I had to read it again, because I was like, there's no way I'm reading this correctly. And I read it a third time, and I'm like, it really does say three and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation. Now, I didn't read far enough to define what they have meaningful conversation, but I'm sure meaningful conversation is about real things in life, not just about, hey, so this is our schedule for all of the events, and blah, blah, blah. Real stuff, three and a half minutes Per week. Now, let's say that that study is wildly off and it's 10 times more than that. Well, even if it's 10 times more than that, by my terrible math, that is 35 minutes per week, which is five minutes a day. Five minutes a day is the standard for how much quality conversation the average parent has with their kids. Let's not be like that. Regardless of where you are in life, married with kids, married with no kids, single and dating, single and not dating, start to practice this now. Invest into relationships. Invest into each other. Invest in gospel community. Invest in the church. Invest in your surrounding community where you live. Eyes up off the device and into each other's eyes. As my eyes go back to my notes. (laughs) Final point. Point number three. We have to recognize that our children are not our children. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 28. This is after Samuel is born. Uh, she has uh, gotten her prayer, he's there, and now she's fulfilling her end of the bargain. She's bringing him uh, to the Lord. And she says, uh, I'll go to verse 27 and read uh, also 28. She says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Key phrase here, Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. She says, I have lent him to the Lord. The Hebrew for that term is used only once elsewhere in the Old Testament. And in that other place, it means simply to give. And so the meaning of this phrase is this. The Lord has given me this child and I give this child back to him. And that is the attitude that we need to have about our children. Our children are not actually our children. They belong to God. And giving them over to God is incredibly difficult because what it means is that we have to give up control. We have to allow God to do whatever he desires in their lives. We're we're allowing God to take them wherever he wants them to go. And so what if this means that God calls your child to live somewhere else in the country far away from you and you never see your grandkids? What if it means that that God calls them to be a missionary in a remote place across the world and you never get to see them? What if it means that your child doesn't become successful by the world's standards? Those are scary thoughts. But giving your kids to God is exactly what we've been called to do because they're not our kids. They have been given to us to steward them. We are borrowing them He is lending them to us so that we can give them back to him. Uh, Some of you know the story of um, our little baby that we lost last year. And I remember being in the hospital, in the ER, uh, right before uh, Allison was to be given this injection that would and the, the, the baby's life and obviously we're upset we're, we're both broken and crying and, and for a while it was, it was silent in the room and finally I put my hand on hers and I said you know what baby? here's the thing we are stewards of this life this life is not ours it is the Lord's to give the Lord's to take let's make the most of the time that we have with her And so, I began to read some Bible stories and sing the Notre Dame fight song and talk about um, Eli and Marisol and our dog and our lives together. And then the doctor came in to administer the injection. And what I said to her was, we are going to take whatever limited time we have to steward this life well, to be faithful, and then give this life back to God. But that's also true with my kids now. Regardless of how long I've got them, my job is to steward them well and give them back to Jesus because they do not belong to me. So it's up to God how long we have them. It is up to him what they become. It is up to him where they are called to go and whether or not they become successful. It is up to us as parents to disciple them well, to pour into them well. It is up to us to do our part by mixing up our best soil and grass seed and piling our kids high up to Jesus. And then you pray your heart out that he makes it rain and he makes the grass grow and makes your kid into something that makes a kingdom difference. Pray for your kid to be Mount Trashmore rather than a landfill. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a good father. That you invest so much into us that you laid your life down for us to adopt us as your children. God, I pray that we would have the same attitude that we would lay our lives God, I pray for the parents in the room or the parents that are watching that we would do everything we possibly can to be faithful to you and invest in our kids well. God, I pray for the people who are married but don't have kids, whether they want to have kids someday or not, that they will invest in the marriage that you have given them. Invest in each other. Practice your presence at home. Lord, for the people who are not married, Lord, that they as single people would invest in the relationships around them, invest in the church, and most importantly, invest in their relationship with Jesus. God, let us be people, regardless of our station in life, who are fully invested in the kingdom over everything. God, I pray that we would raise up Mount Trashmore kids. That we would raise up children who follow after you, who love you, who place you above all else. And God, I pray for all of us who have failed as parents so many times. Lord, that you would remind us of your grace, remind us of your mercy, remind us of your forgiveness, and help us to repent of those ways and live differently in the future. God, I pray that as we sing our final song in worship, you would would call us to repentance in any place that we need to repent. That you would encourage our hearts in the places that we need encouragement. That you would lift us up and put our eyes on you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we will have our final song.